0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 24th of April 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show, Britain tells the Chinese company Huawei it can help build part of its 5G network, despite opposition from the United States and Western security chiefs. As details emerge about the attackers behind the deadly Easter Sunday suicide bombings in Sri Lanka, the government warns that more suspects could still be at large. My guests Somnath Batabayal and Charles Hecker will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including voting ends in the third and biggest phase of India's general election, with results due to be counted next month. Is Prime Minister Narendra Modi on course for victory? And the Philippines tells Canada, take back the garbage you brought into our country over five years ago. Otherwise, we'll ship it back to you. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Sonath Butterbile, who's the lecturer in media and development and international journalism at SOAS, and Charles Hecker, who's the senior partner at Control Risks. Gentlemen, welcome both of you to the programme. Now, a rift appears to be opening up between Britain and its allies in the so-called Five Eyes intelligence group. The United States, Australia, Canada and New Zealand are concerned over a decision by the Prime Minister Theresa May to allow the Chinese company Huawei to supply equipment for the UK's new 5G data network. Now, though Huawei's role would be restricted to some non-core parts, critics claim the company has extensive links to the Chinese government, making it a major security risk. Now, I guess Theresa May wouldn't have taken this decision blindly. Presumably, she would have been guided by the advice of bodies like the National Cyber Security Crime Center, which says that risk is unavoidable. So in other words, if it's good enough for them, why can't it be good enough for the rest of humankind?
1: Well, Juliet, we are living through an incredibly interesting period right now. And what's happening here in the UK, what's happening in Germany, what's happening in the United States, what's happening in developed and developing nations around the world is getting used to the idea that China is going to play a significant role in building the telecoms backbone of the future. And everyone right now is trying to get their heads around that in terms of what it means for security, what it means for industrialization, what it means for politics, and what it means for economics. In the UK, you're absolutely right to point out that Theresa May has taken advice on the threat posed by the introduction of Chinese technology into our national telecoms network and infrastructure. Don't forget, she was home secretary Mm. for a number of years, and this fell very clearly under her purview. She's meant to know what she's talking about. Um, As far as core versus non-core and the level of threat, the one thing that we know that is evolving with technology is something called the attack surface which means that we are now much more exposed with telephones and with the Internet of Things and with 5G that's going to explode the telecom sphere, the amount of points of entry that anybody has into the Internet, into telecoms, into our communications is enormous. Uh, and so what she has to do is make a decision about that is partially economic. Don't forget there are sure, domestic the considerations. Exactly. She wants to close a trade deal with China and to shut the door on Chinese companies from the British telecoms network is not a great opening gambit when you're looking at a future trading relationship so she's had to thread a very very small needle
0: right here. so so juggling quite a few considerations but some of the, let's take a look at this this whole issue about non-core parts i mean that sounds a bit surgical but <laughs> basically what are these non-core parts and isn't it viable that um, a company like Huawei if it if it really did have malice in mind those non-core parts are the, the, the conduit, if you like, for which it can actually um, cause
2: trouble. It's impossible to bifurcate or separate core and non-core, and it'll get increasingly so. Not only that, you cannot, in today's day and age, take out a company and or take out China from global trade. China is involved everywhere. Uh, as it, The US is finding that asking Huawei not to be part of their 5G project is proving impossible because they have Sweden, they have mm. Norway, and both of them use Chinese products in their 5G development. China is all over Africa, right? Mm. How do you negotiate? Where will you draw boundaries? Internet means interconnected situations. where. So, in one sense, Theresa May's right to assess, through her technocrats and securo, uh, securocrats, what is the threat level, and how can we minimize it? And Huawei has been in the UK for the last fifteen years. They have signed up to a treaty to, you know, to minimize or uh, mitigate threats. You know, so, one of course is uh, the the other thing also is: is it legally possible to put out a company just because it's from China? Mm. But what, this is
0: the argument that the Americans uh, are using.
2: Yeah, that, true. So, but. Look at what Germany is doing. Germany has said it's impossible for us to not take in a company because just give the reasons given, and also because it's impossible to say that Chinese products will not be part of our 5G strategy. So, so really, this is just grandstanding,
0: effectively, on on the part of of the chair leader in chief, the United States, because you are you saying that you have to view this in terms of of the, the trade war that America is fighting. With China and perhaps pushing back Huawei is one way of perhaps of getting the upper hand and perhaps leveraging a little bit more out of the Chinese.
1: It is impossible in this situation to separate the political from mm. the economic and and the trade war from what is really the the outstanding situation, which is the tech war. Sure. Uh, that's going to unfold over the next. But, few but is years. this the
0: prism in which we should see this in terms of what Donald Trump is saying about the Chinese having the upper hand and undermining American productivity, American business, and perhaps using the Five Eyes alliance is one way perhaps of reining this company in and extracting something in terms of those trade negotiations.
1: That's exactly right. So Donald Trump is is trying to frighten his primary intelligence allies, saying we won't share any more intelligence with you if your internal communications networks have Chinese kit. Um, so far, that is a threat. Remember, all of these relations are bilateral and whatever the United States doesn't share with other countries won't be shared in reverse. We have yet to see whether this is just sort of banging the drum as hard as possible to force its allies. And frankly, the decisions, as we've just been saying, that Germany is taking and that the UK is taking shows that some of this rhetoric coming out of the White House is not sticking.
0: But clearly, whatever it is that Donald Trump is saying, it is working because the other players in the Five Eyes grouping are actually taking America's side. So given that uh, Britain is, is pushing back then what is this going to do to the Five Eyes relationship? Can it really be the same after this?
2: Well, I mean, one has to, as in global negotiations, weigh it up. China can be a very difficult uh, enemy or adversary to have uh, compared to Australia and New Zealand. Um, China's economic might is not to be, you know, America can throw its tantrums, but given that an important trade treaty is coming up, Theresa May has again weighed it up, but one of the things which understand is the moment you throw national security as America always does, and uh, especially so that the entire media follows. This is China thing, which we every time we talk about China, we have this prism of suspicion with which we look at a country. You know, spies have been there have been American spies, there have been Russian spies. In you know, every time China will do something, doesn't mean that the entire infrastructure will collapse. So. This won't work in the way the American government is uh, moving ahead. And Hawaii has already started its fight back. China has started its lobbying and fight back. So I think for once, I agree with the May position of fudging, you know, mm. to kind of using both sides and doing a balancing act. Well,
0: she wouldn't say it's fudging. She would just say it's being sensible. <laughs> we, 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 we couldn't possibly use the F word. But <laughs> I'm talking about fudging, by the way. <laughs> I mean, look, at the end of the day, when you break this down, What is the danger? Is it China or is it Russia within that cybersecurity context? Who poses the biggest threat?
1: Yeah, fantastic point. I mean, there's no Russian kit in anybody's Internet and there's no Russian kit. Not at the moment. Right, not (laughs) at the moment. For the time being that we're aware of, um, there's not a heck of a lot of Russian kit in telecoms or in the Internet. And Russia is an enormous state-sponsored cyber actor in cyber espionage and in hybrid cyber warfare And it hasn't laid a finger on any of the equipment. So in weighing these things up, as you always have to do in taking a balanced view on risks, um, you know, Russia is a sort of military and political actor in cyber. China is a little bit more on the economic side of of state-sponsored cyber activity. Uh, And you're absolutely right to point out that, you know, there's sort of the devil you know and the devil you don't. We know what Russia's up to. Um, and it's it's been completely candid. Um, you know, Cyber sleuths have been able to track cyber activity in commercial espionage back to China and back to Chinese-sponsored organizations. Um, and so what you've really got to do is understand, I suppose, that no single actor, whether it's a government or whether it's a telecoms company, nobody's defenseless mm. in all of this. And you will see governments encrypting, you will see governments looking to sort of create secure kind of vacuum-controlled spaces between different parts of the internet, between different parts of telecoms, networks, and, and basically laying every single possible defense they have on this, both against the kit and against the hostile actors like Russia.
0: Let's, let's close this down with, with, with um, the final question, which I'd like to put to you, Somnath. It is this idea that, um, that the, the relationship between way the Chinese and Britain could be deepened. This could be the starting point. And certainly, as Charles has pointed out, the real danger comes from Russia. So why not have China and Britain working together to weed
2: out these troll factories in Russia and um, perhaps put them out of business? I think one of the dangers in forming forming that question and me answering it would be that we kind of think of Russia acting together, China acting together. You know, I mean, there are various factors working in, so finding composite enemies is no longer the way, you know, and that's the reason.
0: But China's driven by the economy, so if there's some kind of
2: economic benefit from, from weeding out these drug factories you, and putting them out of business... But you're talking about the Chinese state only. The internet has so many non-state actors, and one has to understand this, that we can't just talk Russia, China, England, or, or the US in the, in the internet world. There are too many non-state actors at play also.
0: OK, which is why it's always referred to as the Wild West out there in cyberspace. Let's move on now, because more details have emerged about the attackers responsible for a series of deadly suicide bombings in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday. According to government officials, they were from wealthy middle-class families, and one of them had studied in the United Kingdom and Australia. The death toll from the attacks on three Catholic churches and three luxury hotels in and around the capital, Colombo, has now risen to around 359, with 500 people injured. A previously little-known group, National Thawijamath, or NTJ, has been blamed for the bombings. Meanwhile, Sri Lanka's Prime Minister, Ranil Wickremesinghe warns that several suspects armed with explosives are still at large. Now, the government has identified this group, NTJ, as the prime suspect. But as far as we know, it hasn't actually owned up to carrying out this atrocity. So should we read anything into their silence? Is there or is some sort of a game being played here? Uh, well,
2: one of the first things to understand is... Th- th- this seems a very different attack as you said the the profile of the uh, suicide bombers are not the stereotype which we attach mm. to um uh, to, to situations mm. like normally this normally poor people uneducated. Yes, uh, and and even if the, at times the stereotypes can be wrong but that's the general one um, the emergence of this group is very new you know the only previous uh attempt seems to have been defacing churches in December. So mm. we, we we know very little. low-level vandalism. Y- yeah, but India, a couple of hours before, did seem to have sent a wire message to their security counterparts in Sri Lanka with very specific details. Also, on the 11th of April, the DIG uh, security had sent, uh, a Sri Lankan uh, a gentleman had sent messages to their intelligence counterparts. It seems that action wasn't taken and immediately the question will arise whether the political rift which is on in Sri Lanka between the Prime Minister and the President, is it harming the intelligence situation? Because it seems that there were several moments of warning which had gone out to the state. Incredible sources as well. Including the US and and the India and and the police. uh, police. So investigations will probably uh, reveal a lot, but you will see a lot of political upheaval mm. one, within the next few months. And it has started already because the, the, the
0: Prime Minister has said that he's getting rid of some of the intelligence uh, members members of the intelligence group etc who were responsible for, for failing to pass on this information but let's broaden this out a moment it's this idea that's emerged that um, NTJ given its size it would never have had the capacity by itself to have mounted something as complicated as these attacks so of course it may have paired up with another operative the one that's said in the frame is Islamic State, would they have chosen this group because of their size, because they're so small and therefore it's it's easy to crawl under the radar?
1: You know, I think this is going to have a lot of terrorism analysts scratching their heads for a very long time. I agree with some. Now, this looks and feels very different from what's been going on, not just in Sri Lanka, but generally around the world in the past year, in the past several months. Um, you know, we've seen this trend towards low tech um, and individual radicalization. We've seen knife attacks, we've seen blunt instruments, we've seen people with truck rammings and car rammings this was really sophisticated. There were more than 60 arrests. There were more than nine, I think, suicide bombers. And you're right, three churches, three hotels. There were safe houses. There were all sorts of really sophisticated elements and planning that apparently took place over the past several months to carry this out. So, yes, that points to IS, which claimed responsibility for the attack on Tuesday, but that is also not being treated credibly and and, with the sort of dispersal of IS coming out of the Middle East and and perhaps there are returnees in this mix, we don't know, that's been reported but not confirmed. I still wonder whether IS, that far away from where they once were in the Middle East, whether they can pull off something okay, this
0: well, well let Okay, well, let's broaden it out a bit, Somnath. If you don't accept that IS may have been involved, could Al-Qaeda have been involved? Because Al-Qaeda has been eclipsed by IS, especially when it built the caliphate. It's now crumbled. Mm. But again, it's been kind of off the radar because the emphasis has been in one direction. So surely this would be a great way, from their perspective, of announcing to the world, "We have come back," because this is Sri Lanka's 9/11.
2: It is. Yeah. I mean, again, lot of conspiracy theories are being thrown out, and again, you cannot dismiss one from the other. But you, might, there is a very strong possibility that local outfits were used by more, uh, more, uh, you know, international uh, terrorist outfits like possibly the Al Qaeda, ISIS. But again, the ISIS. As you say, claimed responsibility a a couple of days later, which is just not their Mm. scene. They would have put up photographs, they would have had Twitter feeds, they put up on the websites. So this was a very different feel. Uh, But again, the sophistication throws us off. Uh, As you said, because of what the the fight back from the state, the intelligence agencies, such activities and activists have had to completely reframe and reform their. Uh, their operations this is back to those days when you know when you have the mumbai terror attacks when you have september 11th mm. just organized on a large scale I mean, there have been claims that this is because in retaliation to christ Church in new zealand uh, because of what happened there to me that seems flimsy because th- it couldn't have been so quick you know this took a lot of planning mm. which begs the question therefore
0: given that we are none the wiser as to who was behind this where does this leave us in the approach we should take in terms of fighting international terrorism? Because, you know, with IS, etc., it was pretty ghastly outfit along with Al-Qaeda, but we had an approach, a strategy. This has undermined that, hasn't it? If,
1: if only we knew, and, and, and that really is, is the question, because we thought we should be fighting online radicalization. We thought we should be fighting poverty among second-generation immigrants. We thought we should be uh, resuscitating the banlieue around Paris or the neighborhoods outside of Brussels. And we thought we should be focusing our efforts on on economic and political and, and cultural isolation. And here we've got a a completely different demographic profile to the people who were driving this event. I mean, international students, Mm. middle class and upper middle class people. Yeah, factory owners. We're told, exactly, people who are not... um, religiously or culturally or economically isolated um, what we do need to fight and and what victories we have had over is and AQ have come from intelligence and surveillance and that where there that's where there's been just a colossal breakdown mm. in in Sri Lanka and you're absolutely right to point out that the next bloodbath and forgive me for making this analogy but the next bloodbath is going to be in the government um, when um, you know there's going to be a purge of the security apparatus because whoever is supposed Supposed to be fighting this wasn't doing mm. it in Sri Lanka
0: They certainly didn't have their eyes on the road on that one You're listening to Midori House here with me Juliet Foster Charles Hecker and Somnath Coming up next Voting ends in the third and biggest phase of India's general election with results due to be counted next month Is Prime Minister Narendra Modi on course for victory? Weighing in at almost 400 pages the Monocle guide cosy homes is packed with everything you need to know about making a great place to live The book is filled with handsome residences and all the contacts you need to make a home that will last a lifetime. And it's a book that celebrates the people who know homes should be able to cope with kids, dogs, and a few scuff marks too. It's a book that knows a home is only as good as the community it's in. And it's a book that takes you through the front doors of everything from mountain hideaways to modernist towers. So be cosy and buy your copy today at monocle.com. Still with me are Charles Hecker and Somnath Batabayal. Now, millions of Indians voted on Tuesday in the third and largest phase of a staggered general election, including Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Mr Modi, who came to power in 2014, cast his ballot in his home state of Gujarat and used the occasion to underline his goal of combating terrorism. So far, voting in 303 parliamentary seats out of 545 has been completed. And, and Somnath, it, it really is an extraordinary because by the end of Tuesday, just thrown in yet more da- data, 66% of those eligible to vote and actually cast their ballots. And it really is a remarkable achievement of election management, because there is the potential there for things to fall apart, but they've kept it
2: together really well. Yeah, 900 million to vote. I mean, it's just staggering. And uh, the election commission works very hard. The, the Government officials, uh, local school teachers—it's a massive machinery which is uh, put into place. Um, Narendra Modi voted yesterday, today or yesterday? I think it was Tuesday. Yeah, yeah, Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and he says now uh, he's completely changed the trope under which the um, ruling party was c- contesting this election, which was development and employment. Suddenly, post Pulwama, where you know BJP had been lagging behind suddenly it has become nationalism, patriotism, security. The the conversation has shifted while the opposition has been trying to bring it back to economic issues, which is what the BJP had been contesting 2014 with. Now, while these are the grand national tropes and, you know, you see the national parties fighting, most of this, the decisions will be made made on very local issues. You know, it will depend how in the biggest state, in Uttar Pradesh, the grand alliances between two regional parties who have been Fighting each other for 20 years, they have come together suddenly. How it will affect the BJP? Whether the BJP will be able to make any inroads in the south of India, where it has uh, in Kerala, which has never got a vote, whether in Bengal they will finally manage to make any inroads. So these are the lo- you know, smaller questions which will add up to that big tally. Um, and everyone's talking about whether Narendra Modi will win in the large sit- larger cities in mid- amongst the middle class. Perhaps that conversation uh, mm-hmm. will be relevant. But in smaller towns, uh, it will depend on uh, very local issues to a point where how much bribe has been paid by which candidate to which <laughs> tribe. It, you know, uh, even recently, elections had to be cancelled in a southern cons- constituency called Velour because in a warehouse, millions of rupees were found, oh, uh, r- <laughs> d- apparently belonging to a candidate. So there you go.
1: The Electoral Commission is working as hard as it can, but there are certain places that it probably can't be. It can't be all the places, all the time. Um, Can I just point out that before he cast his ballot yesterday, Narendra Modi visited his mother. And I'm sure that that was done precisely so that people in the media say he visited his mother before casting his ballot. He's a good son. Um, But, you know, a a nice little touch there. Um, So in the world's biggest democracy, um, the BJP will probably be re-elected and will probably remain in control. I see some shaking heads across the no, studio. Now no, okay. no, 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 hang on a minute. I'm almost, I'm, I'm almost there. So the BJP will probably remain in power. It will likely remain in power in India's largest states and at the federal level but it will lose its majority in parliament and so the BJP is going to have to go into the NDA coalition um, legislating, ruling, reforming, all of those economic issues that the opposition is bringing up that you mentioned, um, those will all be harder to deal with as part of a coalition. And relationships between the center, between Delhi and the periphery will, for the time being, also be difficult to manage under a coalition um, unless the BJP pulls out Um, An overwhelming majority in Parliament, it looks like, it's headed for a coalition.
0: Okay, so a coalition at the end of it. We should know around May the 23rd, I believe, because there's so many millions of votes to to be cast and to count. Moving on now to our final subject, the Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte and Canada are at war over rubbish. Between 2013 and 2014, Canada shipped a massive haul of crates to Manila, which supposedly contained plastic for recycling. Although it was only when the crates were opened for inspection that port officials realised they were filled with household waste. The Philippines has warned Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, that unless he sorts out the problem, the garbage will be sent back to where it came from. And, you know, Rodrigo Duterte is quite sort of famous for his rather colourful language, and he's actually threatened to board the ship if needs be captain it to the nearest port in Canada. I mean, but you, you could actually see him
2: doing that, strangely enough, couldn't you? Not strangely enough, I think that he should do it. I mean, uh, the, the the amount of garbage the developed countries have dumped uh, historically and continue to dump, especially in Africa, it's just you know, it's a crime. It's a crime against humanity. And to bring down their carbon emissions to meet those targets, they send it out to poorer countries who mm. have to buy off those. You know, uh, I mean, where does one start with this? You know, this global North South divide which uh, plagues all climate conversations. So. As far as you know in one one sentence, Canada is accused of a major crime, and their prime minister needs to do something about it
0: and and, and, and it it is a major crime because you you're dumping rubbish in somebody's country under false pretenses because they they mislabeled it so that's, why why is it not treated
1: that's as absolutely a crime? right so well um Rodrigo Duterte is treating it as a crime, he's treating it as an act of war, and yes, you're right, he's given to sort of inflammatory rhetoric, and I don't think the Canadian Navy is yet on a high state of alert. But what this points to, and and where the abuse is taking place, and where the distortion is taking place, and where there's room for this sort of... You know, relabeling of what was, in many cases, human waste when it was supposed to be recyclable Mm. plastic. It points to the fact that this is a massive global business. Um, And um, the Philippines was taking in material for recycling and getting paid for it by exporters of this rubbish like Canada. Um, and you know we have yet to see sort of an investigation um, in, into how this all exactly happened. Although, mind you, Canada has also now passed a law saying yeah. we're not taking any rubbish from anybody. So we're you know, just
0: dumping it on other people. It's a bit rich
1: coming from the Canadians yeah. saying that they won't do this anymore when they're accused of doing it themselves. This is a massive global business that is that is in an enormous state of flux because China basically a couple of years ago said, we're not taking yep. anybody's garbage anymore. Yep. Um, keep it. And it has completely distorted the market and the industry around recycling. And I don't think any country or any city or any recycling program has really come to grips with this. But well, no
2: Malaysia, Poland, Turkey, Indonesia, they have had to take the slack for what China has said in it. So again, somebody else will pick it up. There are always countries which need the money. Mm. And and
0: but it's but it, but I guess that the the danger is that yes you you can make money out of it but if it but it sends out the wrong message potentially that you're so desperate for other people's garbage they'll try to cut corners so you find that it's not just the recyclable stuff that you're loaded with
2: it's also the stuff which you can't recycle well it's a four hundred billion dollar industry you know and it's a private industry. In, in the global south, most of it is unregulated. So, therefore, mm. you will have situations like And that like was a,
0: a question I was going to raise, actually, in the time available in the next 20 seconds, being about the regulation. I mean, just how tight are, are these
1: restrictions? C- clearly not tight enough. Um, I mean, if, if a country like Canada, which is known for its transparency and, it, and, its, and its honesty as a global actor, if they can be sort of caught out having sent a pile of rubbish to another country, then you must imagine that there are actors who aren't quite as transparent as that.
0: Mm. And, it's, well, we don't actually know well they've said they'll do something about it but um, could it take another five years or not I mean who on earth knows but it needs to be sorted out quickly but on that note we have to end today's show Thank you there to my guests, Somnath Batabail and Charles Hecker. Thank you for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Tom Hall. It was researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Helena Jare. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music next, and at 1900 hours, it's The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bach. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Juliette Foster.
2: Goodbye.